You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Ross Gerber, who is the CEO of Gerber Kawasaki, a financial advisory firm which currently manages over $1.9 billion. Ross helped pioneer the popularity of what we now know as FinTwit, essentially using Twitter and other social media platforms for financial content and discussion. He's also a regular on Bloomberg and CNBC, as well as a contributor to Forbes. In this episode, we cover the recent statements from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and what to expect in the markets, his massively successful trade on Tesla, how NVIDIA sits in the middle of a Venn diagram between climate change and technology investment themes, vice industries such as cannabis, gambling, and even psychedelics, his background in music and how it's helped his career in finance, and so much more. Just from this introduction, you can probably tell that I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. You don't want to miss this one, so sit back and enjoy this wide-ranging chat with Ross Gerber. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. Welcome to the Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And today, I'm so excited to have with me Ross Gerber from Gerber Kawasaki. My man, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, honestly, because I think it's been about a year now that I have since discovered you on Twitter and been following very closely. And every time you tweet, I'm just sort of like, yes, this guy (laughs) gets it. It's always a fresh take. And so, I thought it would be great to kick off this conversation with getting your fresh take on this recent Fed meeting that we just had. What was your biggest takeaway from it? I'm really happy with the way the government's changed in the last six months since the Biden election. And having Yellen back as the Treasury Secretary and Powell at the Fed is like the dream team for the stock market. And when Yellen was at the Fed, I still think she's probably one of the smartest people in finance. When you're dealing with people on that intellectual level, they get things that I think a lot of market participants don't understand because they're not as smart or or they think they're smarter than they really are. And so I think the Fed understands and what Powell was talking about, and I think Powell's come around a lot from where he was even three years ago because he was raising rates aggressively three years ago, caused the December sell-off, the Christmas massacre, I call it, and uh, it was a 20% decline. And I was like, Powell, you're going to kill this economy. And Yellen actually called him up and they had a talk. And I think that was when he figured it out that there is an inflation. What am I thinking? And that's when he got dovish and the market rallied. And we had a really good time since Powell and Yellen had that little talk. So now they're working together. And I think it's the best thing ever if you're a stock investor. So my fundamental belief system is very different than people on Wall Street or people in my industry because I come from a very different background. So even though I did go to Penn and I spent a lot of time at Wharton and I studied traditional finance, I came from a Grateful Dead background. So I'm very anti-establishment by nature. I'm very anti-government by nature, anti-authority by nature. I very much don't trust what people tell me from the government. So I really look at things differently. And the way I see the world right now is we've been fighting deflation for the last five to 10 years that actually technology is so incredibly impressive. It innovates so quickly that it can drive costs down for goods and services to such a degree 
that it literally destroys industries like the oil industry, for example, which is completely manipulated to keep prices high, even though there's this unlimited supply of oil. When you look at things like, oh, I'm worried about inflation, and then you say, well, we have a global supply market where anywhere I can go in the world, I can make something. And if it's too expensive in one country, I just go to another country. And there is no end for inexpensive labor in the global economy. So when you think about the main drivers of inflation, like you know, the cost of wages, the cost of energy, these are really the main drivers of inflation. There's an unlimited supply. So the real challenge we've had and what the Fed really has been fighting all this time is deflation. And the tools that they're using now is simply printing as much money as possible and literally at this point, giving it to people to spend to hopefully create some sort of normal economy again, which obviously isn't going to happen because you're not creating it the way you should. So we've created a very, I would say, poor system of growth creation through money printing. Would you go as far as saying it's unsustainable? No, it's completely sustainable as long as rates stay low. So the question is whether or not this is a smart way to do things, not whether it's sustainable. So, so as long as they keep, they, I mean, Powell's like, I'm not going to raise rates till 2023. I'm like, that's so long from now. I don't even know when that is. So in my mind, the Fed's never going to raise rates again, because even the discussion has pushed the markets down. Commodities drop like a, like a stone just on the discussion, just on the discussion about the discussion about the discussion about rates. So I think that's really the risk. The risk is we go right back into a really slow growth economy in the next two or three years, and we get back to what we had in 15, 16 with a slow economy, with wage and wealth inequality and, and a lack of real growth drivers. And so really what the Fed's doing right now is very smart, and, and we need to really push growth forward with the coronavirus and all the, the anti-growth things that are happening. What's your opinion on the fact that everyone seems to hang on Powell's every word in the market? Well, for a guy whose job is to actually do nothing for the next two years, he has the easiest job in America, other than he can't say anything that might even infer that rates might go higher. So his job is to say things that don't spook people because he's actually not going to do anything for a long time. Like if the Fed stops buying so many bonds every month, that's actually a good thing. That's not a bad thing. We do not want the Fed having to spend a trillion dollars a year buying bonds to have fake interest rates. It's not good. So we have to get out of the mess that we started, but that's a good thing. And I think that's really what the markets will adjust to is that these are good things that are happening. We don't want a world where the Fed has to buy bonds every day, print money, give it to people, and that's the only way people will spend. That's not a world that will last. Do you think that's a realistic outcome? I mean, is there any sense of the US being on the same path as Japan and we will eventually nationalize all of our, <laughs> our stock market? And do you think we can actually pull out of this path? It'll be a painful thing you know, for a year when this goes on, and, and it'll be good. But like, you can't expect the markets to go up forever. So like, you have a 2022 PE market that's basically saying rates will be low forever and earnings are going up quite rapidly right now. So then if you think, well, maybe the rates can go to 1%. Maybe the Fed can go to 1%. That's what I think is the highest they can go. That world is still a great world for stocks, but the PE is going to go back to 18. 
having an 18 PE stock market versus a 22 PE stock market is actually good. It's just like real estate right now. Real estate isn't worth what it's trading at, but I got guys in my office refinancing at two and a half percent. They've refinanced five times these guys. Every month, these guys are refinancing my office, right? And so I'm sitting here thinking, if I can't do that every month to get more money, you know, obviously it changes the growth equation. It changes a lot of things. So PE ratios come down and, and the economy becomes more normal versus the government just giving free money away. So it'll be a tough year, but you know, it's one year. That's interesting. So you were actually a fan of Yellen coming in and saying, look, why are you raising rates? CPI is still low. Money is just moving into assets. The velocity of the money is very low. That is creating more and more wealth inequality. Does that compound that one year of pain? So the more positive we get now means more pain when you take the drugs away from the drug addict. It's just like a heroin addiction. The economy is addicted and now we're going to pull it away. And, and like heroin addicts, the hard way is you just like pull it away and it's a horrible period of time for a short term, but then you get healthy. That would be the best thing, even though no politician's going to do that. So what we'll probably do is get the methadone treatment, which is what Powell's trying to do, where he's like, I'll still keep giving you some. I'm just going to take away a little at a time. And this might take years to do, but we're not going to shock the economy, fix it, and make it better because we all got to get reelected. And so because we have our system the way it is, nobody has the incentive to do the hard thing because you won't get reelected. So if you remember back in the 80s, in the early 80s, when Volcker took over, when there really was inflation, he raised rates to like 15% and killed the economy in 82, just killed it. But he knew it, he was going to kill inflation too. And within the eight years of, under Reagan, it ended up becoming an amazing economy. That's kind of what needs to be done, but won't be done because we don't have those type of people. You know, Kyle Bass just came out the other day and said something to the effect of inflation being closer to 12% right now. What is your take on where inflation actually is? Well, he's talking about like money printing. So if you look at how much money we're actually printing relative to how much we have, it's going up like 10 to 12%. So in theory, that's the inflation rate of money. And you can see that inflation in real estate. So real estate prices keep going up 10 to 12%. Stock market keeps going up 10 or 12%. Well, that's really the dollars going down 10 to 12% and asset values look 10 to 12% better. So inflation is relative to how you live. I have friends cutting their cost of living left and right because they live in cities like LA and New York. And they're saying, why am I spending so much money living here when I can move to San Luis Obispo, which is a great town. I have a lot of friends there now. And I can buy a house for a million five, bid up to a million eight, right? And a nice place to live. My kids go to school in a public school now. And my cost of living because of Zoom has dropped tremendously. Okay. I don't even need a car if I live there or I buy a Tesla and I don't even have to pay for gas and no maintenance. So, like, you can cut your cost of living very easily right now. So, in my mind, there's no inflation. Where's the inflation? Well, if you actually look at the numbers, it's gas prices. Well, that's all fake. Used car, like, I don't even know how that's relevant just because the car companies can't make enough cars because of the chip prices. That's not really like inflation, right? So, you know where there's real inflation is in labor costs. The restaurants are all complaining. They want to still pay $10 an hour. Well, unfortunately, those days are over, Mr. Restaurateur. I'm sorry. This labor now costs more. This is how we solve wealth inequality. It's by a higher minimum wage that people earn. And we're seeing waiters here in LA getting paid 
$25 an hour, dishwasher, $25 an hour. Some of the restaurant guys are complaining to me. I say, you've been paying $10 an hour for 20 years. It's going to cost you more. But see, that's not bad inflation because then those people have more money and they spend it. Restaurants are going to get more expensive. Don't eat in a restaurant if you don't want to pay $25 for an entree. So going back to that inflation of the money itself and how it relates to real estate, do you think real estate is actually a good place to be? Yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense of it's an inflation hedge. So as long as government keeps doing this, you, you make 10% a year, right? No, when they raise rates, real estate goes straight down just like the stock market. So if you know your asset is completely pumped up because of rates, you've got to be a little concerned because at this point, they can only go up. So I would say there's parts of the real estate market I really like, but it's not per se buying residential real estate thinking I'm going to make a lot of money because you're not. That same sentiment would apply to stocks as well, correct? Yeah. And it's the same issue. So if I buy a stock that trades at, let's say, 35 PE, it's going to go to a 25 PE. So you better be ready. The way we look at it, the only thing I'm watching right now as an investor is the Fed. So when you started the question is, should we hang on every word he says? I, I don't really care what he says that much. What I want to see is the actions. And if they start taking actions, and I'm not talking about bond stuff, that's just going to create volatility. When the Fed actually raises rate, maybe that's 2023, second or third rate hike, I'm out. I'll call you in a year. But would you move to cash in that position? Yeah, or? you just move to cash. You know, I've done this long enough. When the Fed starts really moving, it's just a matter of time. You know, there used to be this old saying, it's like after the third rate hike, you're done, you know? And I think that still kind of holds. So maybe he raises rates three times and I'm out. And so you move to cash, you just wait and you just be patient. It happens once a decade. It'll happen this decade for sure. We'll have a bear market this decade, and it'll be when the Fed chooses. I think that's years away. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So let's talk about Gerber Kawasaki a little bit. You have nine investment themes that you focus on and, and research. What research does GK rely on for placing its high conviction bets? Uh, that's an interesting question or way to look at it. So I do things differently here. So most analysts focus so much on financials and past performance of the company, which is important. And I study fundamental analysis. I read lots of analyst reports that are so overly thorough over every metric of a company. It's unbelievable. And they literally pay people to figure out all this stuff, much of which is valuable and much of which is overkill. The best way to learn about a company is understanding the people involved. I've always looked at this business as I'm betting on people. I'm betting on a team. Is this group of people really innovating? Are they really executing their business? I mean, a perfect example was Elon when we bet on, on Tesla and, and it was down. And we were down millions at that point in 18, in 2018. And I went up and met with the team. That was what I did. I didn't like go read more research reports. I went to Tesla. I literally walked the entire factory. Like they opened it all up to me, which that was part of it. I was like, you know, I want to see everybody. I want to meet everybody. And I saw incredible things there, just incredible things. And I was like, dude, I don't care what anybody on Wall Street says, they don't get it. And we invested more money at that point. It was my biggest score in my career. You know, I think we've made 150 million on Tesla for our clients. And it was because of the people and not Elon. Elon was part of it, but he was also the problem, just like he is now. So, you know, there's just great people at Tesla. And although one of them left recently, I'm really sad to see Jerome Gillian leave. So, any company I'm investing in, I really want to know the people involved, like Nvidia. You know, we're big investors in Nvidia. We're in a huge rally right now in Nvidia. They're, I've been an investor for a long time in this company. It's the management team there led by Jensen. It's just, they're so great at what they do. They're so smart and they execute their business so well. It's just like why I still own Apple, even though they haven't innovated anything, is that Tim Cook just executes so well. They have such a good business. They make such good products. Whether you like it or not, even though it's not a, an innovation story, it's a consumer product story, you know? And they make just amazing consumer products and, and execute so well. So you have to know Tim Cook. You have to know the people. And that's where I spend a lot of time is getting to know CEOs, staff, talking to employees. We have a lot of clients who work at companies. So, you know, are you happy or sad? You know, things like that. So that's actually innovative, but also more traditional than people might think. It's reminding me of maybe how Buffett approaches investing more than others. So 
And I know that you have a unique background, but you've also studied the greats and studied finance. How do you compare your style to someone like Buffett? I learned a lot from Buffett, and I think it's very similar. And I would say where I'm most different with Buffett is I'm not wedded to valuations and the Graham and Dodd model of finance, which I think isn't relevant anymore. So the way I look at the world and value isn't created by hard assets. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Hard assets have no value at all. And the value is all IP and intellect. So the value of your firm isn't your desks and, and your building, it's the people in it. And that I think is where I differ from Buffett. But when you're looking at buy and hold, own great businesses, look for cash flow increases, dividends, valuations do matter to me. I just do it differently. Going back to that theme of people, you mentioned very briefly Jerome Gilliam from. Tesla, he's now left. And I've heard you say that he's like their superstar. He's their secret weapon of sorts. So that's a big change. Has he sort of, you know, secured Tesla? The foundation is there for them to continue on and grow without him? Or do you think that that's a hit? No, I think they'll be fine without him. But so I don't like this philosophy. And it's not just Tesla. This happens at Netflix all the time, too. It happens at tech companies. And there's this philosophy at tech companies that by firing or getting rid of some of the established players, it mixes it up and creates more innovation and opportunity. And there's some truth to that, but it also is very disruptive to teams and very disruptive to the flow and to morale. And I don't think tech people have as much EQ as they do IQ. And so they don't value the happiness of their team and the emotional parts of managing a business as much as the the technical. And so I think what happens to Tesla, like with Jerome, is the same thing that's happened when they launched Model 3 and they burn people out. You know, it's like the expectations are so high there. It's crazy. He's got these Texas factory, he's got the China factory up. The guy works nonstop. He's a relentless cost cutter. He's burned out and they get tired of it and they leave. And he made 90 million. He sold his stock. He made 90 million. And it's a loss for Tesla, but I'm sure the young guys there have jumped in and they're probably going to do a great job. But it doesn't make me happy. And touching on what you said about not being too strung up on valuation, a lot of your approach uh, reminds me of Kathy Wood's approach, or maybe it's the opposite, right? Because she's had a lot of press, especially in the last year, about being very outspoken, out on social media, meeting with Tesla, being there. There's a lot of similarities, but maybe not a lot of people know or understand that you've been on the cutting edge of the social media movement for a very long time. Oh, yeah. We taught ARC their playbook. I mean, they came to us, you know, it was like, wow, you guys are doing all this stuff on Twitter. And like they started tweeting. I love ARC and, and the team there, super sharp. We've worked together during the Tesla days, you know, because there was only three of us that were supporting Tesla, us, ARC, and Ron Barron. And so we did have communications, uh, you know, sharing information and our, our beliefs. So I'm, I'm a big fan, but we're very different investors. They're intellectuals there. So they hire the smartest people they can find, going back to the IP value. Their IP value is huge, right? Like the research they do is phenomenally good and I read it all. But they're not stock traders there. You know, they're not guys like me. You know, it's like I'm a stock guy first. When I grew up, I grew up with like a stock in my hand. So, like, I was thinking about the stock market when I was 15. I was like getting newspapers and trading, like, at my mom's Smith Barty broker. It was like, why is this kid hassling me? And it was like $200 a trade, you know? 
So I think that's a skill set that they don't have at Ark. And you can see that by the way they bought Coinbase and DraftKings, where they just pile into a stock because they like the idea. But I'm like, dude, it just listed. It's going to go down for sure because we knew Coinbase people selling. We knew who was selling. And it was like, why would you buy the first day? And they piled in and they lost a bunch of money. Over time, it's more like an index, like where Coinbase, I'm sure, will be a good stock over time. But you know, I would rather buy it today than when they bought it. But we're stock traders. So we, we look at the markets differently. I'm closer to a Warren Buffett than I am a Kathy Wood as far as style. Well, let's talk about your themes a little bit more. You've got nine investment themes. Maybe just right. give us a general overview of them. And we've talked about a couple of the stocks underneath. I want to dig in on those a little bit more. But just generally speaking, what's the overview? My experience in, in life as an investor, I look at it as decades. So this is my third decade now, coming on my third decade. So I've been doing this for 28 years. And, and when I started, it was the PC. And I, I looked around and I said, there's going to be a PC on every desk. And people were like, ah, you're crazy, Roz. Ah, these machines, they'll never work. And I bought Dell and Gateway and AOL. And that was like my first big score in .com, Microsoft. You know, and then it was cell phones. And I was like, one day Apple's going to sell 200 million cell phones a year. And people were like, ah, you're crazy, Roz, blah, blah, blah. And we rode the Apple train for a long time. And then it was social media and search and how we use the internet. And now we are entering a new stage. So it's a new decade and there's new themes. And my number one theme right now really is two themes, but is climate change. And so, you know, right now we haven't had rain for 14 months here in California. There's no water. I'm scared to death of the fire season. We have no more time to solve this problem. And yet it's incredibly profitable and economically beneficial to solve it. Okay. The only reason we're not is because the forces that be in the oil industry and in the car industry, they don't want this solution because it's money over lives. So if you're an Exxon, it's money over lives. It's, it's, I need money today, no matter how bad. And now we've seen the boards being rebuked and changed because these companies have to adapt. Like NextEra Energy figured that out. They were Florida Power and Light. And they're like, oh, we're a natural gas power company. Like We should go into renewables. Now the largest renewable energy company in the world made us a lot of money. Great investment. You know, you got to love NextEra. And, and that's what energy companies need to be doing. So we're investing in climate for energy and transportation. And, and I think this is going to be probably the biggest driving theme for investors besides technology over the next decade. Why? Because we have no other choice. And so when you talk about energy, a lot of that is renewable energy and, and storage. And then when you talk about transportation, it's electric vehicles. So obviously, starting with Tesla is the king of all of this because they are energy and transportation. And they are the innovative leaders here in both of these sectors. This is super rare. You know, it's like Apple and Microsoft being in the same company. So Tesla has unlimited potential and absolutely should be in your portfolio, no matter how crazy Elon can be. Not only are they a leader, I've heard you say that they have zero competition. Yeah, that was my thing this week. You know, when you really assess, especially on the EV side, like who's going to scale EV production of 500,000 units the soonest and compete with Tesla. And there's nobody that can do that. There's nobody. So I think they've got the Ford Mach-E might do 30 or 40,000 a year. I don't think they can make 100,000 of these. So everybody can make an EV. Everybody can have Magna produce an EV or ask Foxconn, but nobody's done it in scale. And I know how hard it is. See, that's the difference between me and everybody else. I know how hard it is to scale EV production 
because I saw how hard it was myself at the time. And it almost killed Elon. Like, I don't think these CEOs have the wherewithal of Elon to do this. And I think it's going to be really hard to scale. With that, it's because of cell technology and batteries. That's what makes it hard. And that's where the opportunity is and where we're investing millions and millions of dollars every day is in battery technology, commodities around the battery technology, and the processes around making batteries. Well, just while we're on that subject, again, Tesla comes to mind, right? They're now a battery manufacturer. But I am just curious, if you had to choose between investing in Tesla or investing in the commodities, something like lithium, I know you have a position, I think, in LIT, which one would you choose? When I went up for a battery day, I was lucky enough to ask a question. And my question was, if Tesla succeeds at everything it does, what impact will this have on climate? Will it have a measurable impact? And he basically danced around the question and said, no. Basically, if I achieve every goal in my life, it's barely a tip in the iceberg for what needs to be done. And that the purpose of Tesla is to push the advent of sustainable transportation, not solve climate change. Every gigafactory, there's 10 of them open. They're making 20 million cars a year. It's just the tip of the iceberg of what needs to be done. Then he puts me in his cell factory. So I'm one of the few humans that's actually been at the the new Tesla cell factory. And I walked that entire floor. This is like, this was really cool. This was like, kind of like going on a spaceship. You know, it's like they all wear spacesuits in there. And I didn't know much about batteries at the time. And then I started working with a company called Benchmark Minerals which are some of the leaders in getting lithium and other supplies for battery companies. So I have access to the smartest people in batteries. So they started educating me. I go, I can't go up to battery day and not know what an anode and a cathode and all this stuff does. You know? So they're educating me. This isn't my thing. You know, I, I'm a finance guy. I'm a music guy. But oh, so Tesla reinvented the cell, the battery cell. And when this works for real, it's the biggest game-changing technology there is. So All the other companies need battery cells. And Tesla isn't going to supply any of them to anybody else because they need everyone they make. So the demand for the three battery companies that exist today, maybe a fourth, there's a private company called Northvolt, which I wish I could invest in, which is a fourth battery company. But there's basically three battery companies. Then there's a few main lithium companies. And basically, these companies dominate the battery market. And I think that this opportunity is as good at or better than Tesla. The only reason I don't think it's better than Tesla is I think Tesla will execute better than these battery companies and the, and the GMs of the world. So right now they're equal in my portfolios. So if I have a 5% position in Tesla, I have a 5% position in lithium, LIT. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient. 
Briggs&Riley.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. So climate change is one of the main themes. I think you mentioned there's two really major ones. So what's the other one? Yeah, and then the second is technology frontiers, they say, or what I like to say, AI and fintech. You know, so the way Bitcoin... And, and the way AI is changing technology, um, we're making strategic investments in those areas. So tech will always be a main sector. With that in mind, something like NVIDIA might almost straddle the two themes right. together. NVIDIA is the top holding in my, will be the top holding in my ETF. In your ETF. Okay. I also have a position in NVIDIA. So I was curious to ask you about that because it's had a great run. At the time yeah. of this recording, it's sitting around $750 a share by my rough analysis, it appears to be kind of trading at a fair value now. But that said, I've heard you say that the demand for their chips is essentially infinite. How are you looking at NVIDIA and how much further do you think it could run from here? Well, they're constrained and you can only make so many chips a year. So that would be the, the downside, right? They're actually throttling back chips so that people don't use them for crypto. So they're not even close to meeting demand because they serve every market that's booming. So it started with gaming. That's when I originally got involved with NVIDIA because I'm a gamer. And so, so I've owned NVIDIA for a long time, well before they got into the autonomous driving game, which was really the second big driver of our investment in NVIDIA was their autonomous driving chips, which was what Tesla was using before they developed their own chips. So I was like, well, you know, so you had Mobileye and you had NVIDIA and Mobileye got bought out. And then we were like, oh, you know, NVIDIA yeah, they make gaming chips, but like autonomous driving chips is like every car is going to use this, not just Tesla. And then Tesla made their own. And I was like, that's fine for Tesla, but everybody still needs NVIDIA chips and they're great. And then crypto came around and then the demand for NVIDIA chips was huge. And then when crypto died, they had that overhang and NVIDIA was down 50%. It was a great opportunity to buy NVIDIA back then because we knew crypto was just either was going to come back or some other business would grow. So then there was AI and data centers, right? So then that grew. So they're in that business too, right? So I'm like, what what area are they in that isn't phenomenal? So every business they're in is growing like crazy. The demand is well greater than supply. I know gamers 
in back alleys with cash trying to get a, a new NVIDIA chip. I mean, seriously, I'm not kidding. Like with cash, like I'll buy a chip for you for a thousand bucks, you know? Is that a risk factor though? You mentioned Tesla making their own chips. They're not the only one. I mean, Google has now been started making their own chips. Right. Facebook is making, I mean, all the big tech companies. This is an IP thing. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you the IP at Google isn't good enough or this or that. But I, I think Google has proven that they're not good at doing other things than Google. So like you got YouTube, which is the best asset Google has. Why are you worried about chips? You're not going to make great chips. You know, Apple's made some great chips, but that's kind of in their hardware expertise. Google is not a hardware company. They don't make hardware well. They just don't. So to me, chip makers are very focused, very capital intensive, very difficult business. And NVIDIA in a way has monopoly. A few other industries you seem to keep a pretty close eye on would be what I would call vice type industries, yeah. right? So gambling, yeah. marijuana, and even psychedelics, which I am especially interested in and want to talk about. My initial question to kick this off would be something like, what would be your first draft pick for all three of those industries? So, so cannabis is one of my favorite industries. So what we've learned over the last 30 years is that pot is a harmless drug. It does not have any severe effects on people and has lots of benefits. Most of the benefits are mild, but they're benefits. And when you look at a society that allows drinking and cigarettes and Advil, and you know, it seems just completely hypocritical. So pot laws are Jim Crow laws. There's no logic behind them other than to jail African-American and minorities, immigrants. It's always been used that way. It's one of the most wrong Jim Crow laws ever. And they've used it in countries all around the world for oppression. And so if you look at all these young kids in jail for, for pot, I would think the vast majority of them are African-American and it's time this stops. It's just got to stop. Okay. So we've got Juneteenth now as a holiday. That's a step. That's nice. But we got to get these kids out of prison for doing something that is ridiculous. Right. And it ruins people's lives. You know, you get a, a pot conviction and you're a white kid, you get it expunged in six months. But if you know, you're an African-American kid and don't have the means, you have to live with this on your record forever and you can't get a job. Now, cannabis is legal. They just signed Connecticut again. So the fact the federal government's still dragging its feet, is just absurd. Now. It's just beyond absurd. So in cannabis, we like several companies that are very well run. All of them trade only in Canada because of the absurdity of the law. But I think the best three companies in cannabis are TerraSen with Jason Wild. We've got TrueLeave with Kim Rivers, who's just amazing. And then you've got Green Thumb with Ben. Ben Kovlar, who's also amazing. So those three companies we're heavily invested in as much as we can because we have lots of limitations where we can buy these stocks still. But once the ridiculous laws change and these stocks can list on the New York Stock Exchange, they will double in value for sure. But they're well-run businesses, profitable businesses. It's a great business. It's just a great business. So we just have a very high allocation to cannabis at this time. That being said, I think online gambling is like cannabis where so many people do it and they just do it illegally through these like Bermuda, you know, apps or whatever. So I do think gambling is worse than cannabis. Actually, I look at it as entertainment. You need to be responsible. I think there needs to be limits like in the apps to prevent people from blowing all their money. But we're big investors in MGM. That's our number one pick in the space. Why? Because we love Vegas. It's a reopening play. It's such a well-run business. Great management. I've been investing in Vegas since 89 when they opened the Mirage, you know, and I still own stock in the Mirage, you know. So MGM is really the leader. Wynn used to be a great business and it's gone down the tubes since they fought, got rid of Steve Wynn. 
Blackstone owns the rest of the hotels in Vegas, but they don't have an online business. So MGM is in a great spot. It's an international business. Uh, online gambling is going state to state to state. It's easy money. You know, I, I do DraftKings. I bet on uh, Phil Mickelson and uh, John Rahm or whatever for the US Open. I put 10 bucks in. It's fun. It makes it more interesting to watch the games. So I'm all for it. It's a, kind of a merger of sports, gambling, and, and entertainment in, in casinos. So so we like that that business, and I think MGM is the clear winner here. Um, and then psychedelics, we haven't taken a position in yet because mostly it's super early. The companies are like pre-stage, non-profitable. I have mixed feelings about psychedelics because in my experience with them in my life, I saw negative outcomes too, not just positive outcomes. Although for me, it was a positive outcome. It's not for everybody. And so... I think there's a place for psychotherapy, uh, and and I think for a lot of people, if they tripped, it would be really illuminating for them and maybe very helpful. But it's also not as open and shut of a thing. Given that we talked about all these different companies and different industries, it brings up the question around portfolio construction, diversification, right. etc. So, what is your? I guess you know you're launching an ETF. We could talk about right. that and how many positions are going to be in that ETF, how diversified it is across different industries. Maybe just what's your overall philosophy on that? So portfolio construction for clients is a little bit different than the ETF because the ETF's equity only. It's really meant to replicate the equity exposure we have for our clients so that people in the general public can take advantage of our stock picking and and add a core diversified growth portfolio to their funds. You know, you got a lot of guys out there who own Tesla and GameStop and some crypto. And I'm like, you know, that's great. And that might work out well, but you're going to have a very volatile ride here. You know, maybe you need a core growth portfolio to add to your IRA or something because you don't want to just take risk with everything you have. You know, what we're saying is we're trying to earn a very good return for clients better than the market, but without taking a ridiculous level of risk, like an ARC fund, for example. Like, for example, we're up on the year while ARC's down. Why? Because we don't just own innovation. One of the sectors we own is in the pet care industry. I'm a big investor in the pet care industry. People have lost their minds over pets. I mean, the dog is king in most people's house. So we're investors. Actually, I've never lost money in the pet business. So that's one of our sectors. It's not as business technology, but it's one of our nine themes that pets live like humans now. We got a profit off of it. Portfolio construction for us is very much based around risk. Because what we think is in bull markets, everybody wants to take more risk than they're comfortable with. And then in, when the bear market comes, they cry. So we're generally more conservative building portfolios for people than what they per se want, but then they're really happy about it. The way we limit risk is through diversification into different asset classes, as well as using bonds and, and other types of assets to create stability, depending on how much up and down you want. So what we're really trying to do is determine how much volatility a client's comfortable with. So like for the ETF, it's 100% stocks. And it's going to be about 40 stocks right now I'm looking at. The mandate is between 21 and 50 stocks, so it's concentrated. So you'll get the most volatility, obviously, if you just own our top 40 stocks. But maybe you're a little bit more conservative. So you could buy like a bond fund, like a muni bond fund for 20% of your assets and our ETF for 80. That construction is very much a personal thing. Some of my clients are young and they're super conservative. Some of my clients are old and they're really aggressive. So it's just every person's different. And that's where meeting with a financial planner and working on an investment strategy for you is much more important 
than per se portfolio construction. Because unless I know what you really want out of your portfolio, because we can all fantasize about the upside, but what matters is when COVID hits and we're down 35%, do you want to be down 35% or do you want to be down 20%? And that's, that's really where we look at risk tolerance. I'm glad you brought a financial advisory because this seems to be an industry that is almost the most ripe for disruption, or at least the industry that most people are trying to disrupt from the outside looking in. And just in the last year, you've seen this tidal wave of Main Street retail investors going on Robinhood, taking their investments into their own hands. I mean, you said earlier that you're a little bit anti-establishment. So I get the sense that some part of you is like rooting this on, but also I imagine you see inherent risk there as well. Well, I hate Robinhood because they're trying to get people to take risk. But I work with public.com and, and I have no financial relationship with them, but I love their app. And, and not see, that's why I started the ETF. Not everybody wants a financial advisor. Not everybody wants that. Now, I think everybody should have one and my firm will work with anybody. That's what we do. But not everybody wants that. I think it's 60% of people do it themselves. And we wanted to create a way for them to invest with us and so platforms like Public, which is like Robinhood and you can buy and sell stocks on it, but they added like a Twitter feed for stocks and they added like a clubhouse within one app. And so they're really trying to educate people. It's like Acorns and all these companies, like really trying to educate you, not just like get you to like burn your savings, YOLOing options, you know, like this whole like YOLO, I'm going to put all my money into something and fucking cash out. That's like the dumbest philosophy in the world because you're going to lose eventually. I can show you how to build wealth over time. It's not as sexy, but it works every time. I've been doing it for 30 years and it takes time, but you'll build a solid level of wealth over a decade and your life will never be the same. You'll be so much happier with financial security. I don't understand the desire for financial insecurity. I sleep well every night. If I'm not sleeping well, you know, like you shouldn't be up going, oh my God, if GameStop goes down tomorrow, I'm going to get wiped out. It's not just YOLOing your life savings, it's YOLOing your life savings and margin, right? Which Robinhood right, offers. Totally. So that's why I don't like uh, Robinhood is A, they lie, their trades aren't free. B, they try to encourage people to do things that's bad for them. And C, they don't care. If you lose, they're happy. They don't care. See, for me, I care. None of my clients lose. Market's gone up for years and years and years. Nobody should be losing. You see what I'm saying? In a way, I have the easiest job in the world. You buy Microsoft and you go home. So what's happening now has been great for my business and I think is great for people, which is for the first time since I was a kid and started in the business, people care about the stock market. Again, my musician friends are asking me about stocks. Shocking. My high school friends want to talk about stocks, which they would avoid like cancer before. You know, I go, in, I go anywhere. People are like, talking about stocks, you know? And for me, it's super exciting time because, you know, I've sort of been toiling in obscurity for the last 28 years uh, since .com. And it's super fun to see so many people excited about investing because that is the key to having something in this world. And you talk about wealth inequality, it's not really that it's rigged against you. It's just you don't know how to use it to rig it for you. And that's the stock market. That's all these rich people have that you don't have is they know to invest in the stock market. And that's always been available to people, but not the information. And now with the internet, the information's there. I'm the only firm that you can work with and get financial advice. There's no other high quality financial advisors that will meet with somebody with $5,000. 
my advisors are like, now they're like, we should have minimums. We're getting exhausted. I go, we will not have minimums at this firm. If you're too freaking tired, I'll hire another guy. You know, we just hired three more guys you know, and gals because it's just like, you know, the demand is huge for financial advice and it's really hard to get when you're young. So there's lots of solutions now. People are now taking these opportunities and, and it's great because that's what's going to solve wealth inequality is that everybody needs to participate in the stock market. A couple more things I want to touch on because there's a difference here with what you're describing against other, I would say, more traditional wealth management firms. And my quick story on this is while I was really early days in the company I run now, I had interest in that space and I actually interviewed at one of the top wealth management firms and two things happened. One, it was very apparent that my resume, the only thing that mattered that they asked me was how many wealthy people do you know? Right. And then the second thing was, here are the products that you're going to sell to these people. So how is GK different in that way? So it's exactly the opposite. So we say, how many people do you know? Because we can work with anybody. Now, fortunately for us, we get tons of leads every day. So whether you know people or not, it doesn't matter. We just have so much demand. That's pretty rare in our business. And it's taken me a while to get to that stage, you know, 11 years here. But we're there. So for our people, they have a huge advantage working at my firm because we just have this flow of clients. Like we need help. But really, truthfully, if you come work at our firm, we're like, who do you know? Who you can work with anybody? What's a great niche for you? You know, maybe that you you came from technology, so you you're good with tech people or you're an engineer. So what we really try to do is build a marketing plan around those people. Secondly, we don't have a product. Oh, well, now we have kind of a product with our ETF, but but it's not our ETF. I'm an advisor on an advisor shares ETF, but we're advisors. So we get paid based off the amount of money we manage. In the old days, and still for most brokerage firms, they get paid on commission. So if you go to a UBS broker, the clients I was just seeing before this have a huge account at UBS and they, it's a brokerage account and they get charged like a $200 commission for every trade or something. And they're done with these people and they're being sold products. That's how these firms, they develop products and then they sell them to their wealthy clients. And that's how they make money. Um, and it's a complete conflict of interest. So when you're a fiduciary investment advisor like myself or any of the independent investment advisors, we have an obligation to our clients. So we don't have products to sell. We don't create products to sell. Um, everything must be disclosed, all conflicts disclosed. Uh, we get paid based off the amount of money we manage. So if I make my clients money and they add to their accounts, I make more money. So it's in my incentive to see my clients make money, not to get commissions on products. So that's what's really happened in our industry is we've gone from a brokerage, commission, sales. Like they probably were like, how good are you on the phone? Like how good of a salesperson are you? That's UBS and Merrill Lynch. And basically now they just sell loans, to be honest. They're just like, oh, I'll get you a mortgage. You got to move your money over though. Sorry, can't get a mortgage unless you move your money over. It's so freaking corrupt, right? So that's how brokers work. And then this whole investment thing started called fiduciary registered investment advisors. And it kind of started in the late 2000s. And we were originally in the old days, we only could sell on commission, you know, mutual funds and we get paid a commission. So when advisory came out, I loved it. I was like, this is a way better way. And so I started doing that in 2003. I was one of the first people around doing it. And I was managing a big company of advisors then. So I could afford to make a lot less money because you make a lot less money charging a fee versus a commission. You just make a lot less money, but you get paid over time. 
So I started this. And so when, when the financial crisis happened and I started GK, the idea from the beginning was we aren't going to have commissions. We're going to go away from commissions, be advisory only, fiduciary, do what's best for the clients, no products, you know, build our assets. We started with, I think it was like 30 million in assets under management. And now we're at like 1.9 billion. So it's been a good, good ride. And that's what clients want. They want to just pay a fee, you know, for services and and not be preyed on with products. And the ETF you're involved in, that's going live when? July 2nd. Um, you can find the information on advisorshares.com. Um, they are the ETF provider. I'm the portfolio manager. They asked me to do it for this fund. It's a actively managed multi-thematic fund. You know, I realized that there was a huge tax advantage with ETFs. There's a huge tax advantage. So I can buy and sell stocks in the ETF, but those clients of the ETF won't have to pay capital gains taxes because it's in an ETF structure. You only pay taxes on an ETF when you buy and sell the ETF itself. Well, every year I got to sell some of my Tesla. I got to sell some of my Apple. I buy some new ideas. I create taxes. Well, now I can do this for my clients and not have any tax consequences. So the ETF was created mostly around passive investments. And that's why it has this tax advantage. And these are the first active funds. I think I'm one of the only active managers in the world that have figured this out, that I can trade all day with these things and not create taxes for my clients. Huge advantage you know, of ETFs. All ETFs have this, but none of them trade. None of them trade within the ETF. Maybe they rebalance once a month or once a quarter. Well, this is a huge plus. So yeah, it launches July 2nd on the New York Stock Exchange. You know, the symbol is going to be GK. And you can find all the information about it and the prospectus at advisorshares.com. So given that you and I have similar backgrounds coming from music and finding ourselves in this finance industry, I have to ask because I had talked to Tom Gaynor recently at Markel Corp. And he had this quote where he said, in order to be a great investor, you also have to be able to write a poem. And it reminds me of music a lot in that way. I'm curious, is there anything from that industry or that background of yours that you bring to the table or you find yourself finding as an advantage in some way? Well, I mean, I'm sure you know that many great investors have music background. You have, let's say, a chord structure, and then you have solos over these chord structures, and it's completely improvisational. I'm an improvisational musician, unlike most musicians. So I play by ear, and, and I can hear music, and I can play it, and I can kind of play with anybody. So it's, it's, it's really fun. And, and I have both educations by ear and by school. So what I think is that Investing is very similar. Things constantly change. So you have the chords of the song, but you're playing the solo around these chords. And as the changes happen, you have to be able to play around these changes. And that flexibility is so key to being a good investor. Where most investors fail is in rigidity and thought, where they believe a certain thing and they're just stuck and wedded in that thought process. And they ride that to the end. It's kind of like the Peter Schiff stuff. You know, he's the gold guy. He'll always be the gold guy. He will never not be the gold guy. It doesn't matter what you say to Peter. And I know Peter. I've met him. I hung out with him. I think he's a smart guy. I like him. I have nothing against him, but I'm like, Peter, I get your shtick. You know, you're the gold guy. But those days have come and gone. You know, like it's like gold is never going to be that exciting, Peter. You know, get in on Bitcoin, you know, and he just doesn't want to admit that Bitcoin is the new gold. And if he was smart, that's what he would have done. He wouldn't be so wedded to gold. And he'd realize that Bitcoin is digital gold. That's all it is. He should be the biggest Bitcoin guy, but he's so wedded 
in his thought process that he can't open his mind to it. And that's where the psychedelic therapy might be beneficial to Peter, you know? <laughs> and that's where jazz music and being a musician, I think, gives, if you're an investor too, gives you that sort of open-mindedness that you need, especially when you're wrong. I'm wrong. I wish I could say I'm always right. I'm certainly not. And I try to limit my losses. That's a very important rule of investors. You know, sell your losers. Do you have losers in your portfolio right now? Just sell them. They're not going to turn into winners, you know? And, you know, I thought, you know, Funko Toys was going to do well. It didn't do well. And we lose money. We sold. You know, they misled us. We lost. So you move on. But you've got to be flexible that your ideas might be wrong. You've got to be willing to play with the other musicians. So I, I don't play, I'm not a solo artist. I play with a band. And I have a band here of other people, other advisors, other analysts, all not only in the firm, outside the firm. And I play with them too. So I want to listen to what they're playing and how, how that affects what I'm playing. And that's very important in the investment process is listening to everybody else around you's ideas, including the short sellers, including the people. See, a lot of people don't know that like I have relationships with certain short sellers and I read and listen to their stuff. And they know I do. And I respect their work, even if I disagree. But I read it because why would I not want to see the worst things that people can come up with? So if I'm DraftKings, I don't own stock in DraftKings. I read Hindenburg. They do good stuff. They get sued if they're wrong. So far, they've been pretty right on a lot of stocks that they are against. I've had my issues with the way DraftKings runs their business. They put out a, a report like this. You can't just discount it. You got to read it. You got to read it. You might not like what it is. Well, it's online gambling. It wouldn't surprise me if part of that business is shady. It wouldn't surprise me at all. So why is everybody, oh, this can't be right. Buy more DraftKings. Da, da, da. That's not really listening to the song. So listen to the music. Maybe you're going to learn something you might not like. You got to be open-minded to it. You got to be flexible. You got to move on. You push a button, you sell, you move on. Reminds me of the Charlie Munger quote about knowing the counter argument better than your own argument. Oh, for sure. For sure. In fact, I appreciated these relationships with short sellers that were real short sellers, not these goofballs on Twitter. And they wanted to know what I was thinking actually too, which was very interesting. And that's why we were sharing information. They were very concerned about me because they were like, what does this guy know that we don't know? And I was really concerned about them. I'm like, what, what do these guys know that I'm missing? You know? And in the end, I was right. So it was good. And I think you're referring to Tesla most, yeah, yeah, mostly yeah. on that, that one. Was, that was the biggest battle I've, I've had to fight in my career, way bigger than I ever planned. You know? And it was also the most profitable thing I've done. So it worked out. Well, Ross, I really admire what you're doing uh, with GK and everything else. I want to give you an opportunity to hand off to our audience where they can learn more about Gerber Kawasaki, where they can find you on Twitter, anything else you want to share. Yeah. So um, you can always find us at our website, GerberKawasaki.com, or you can find our ETF at AdvisorShares.com, as well as you can follow me on Twitter at, at Gerber Kawasaki. Um, we also have an Instagram page and a YouTube page. We put out a lot of content on YouTube at Gerber Kawasaki for all different types of investors. We've got a bunch of different shows, young people. We have a, a woman of wealth show now. We've got all kinds of stuff going on on YouTube too. So uh, we're really focused on educating and empowering people to change their lives in the positive and build a financial future. So if you're looking to get financial advice, 
to have more confidence in the decisions you're making with regard to your finances. We work with anybody and everybody as long as you're a good person. And uh, so feel free to reach out. Fantastic. Well, Ross, this was a real pleasure. I can't wait to do this again sometime soon. And you're just down the street. So maybe as things opened up here, which they just kind of did. We're open, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to parties. I Come on help. down. Come on yeah, down. We'll do this in person next time. We're all vaccinated and ready to go. So get vaccinated. Thanks again for your time. Let's do it again. Yeah. Thank you. All right. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, definitely go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you get these episodes every week. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out the tools and courses we have on the investorspodcast.com or just Google TIP Finance. It'll come right up. And lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. Give me your feedback. I'm really loving it. It's been very helpful. I want to continue to make the show the best it can possibly be. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.